Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my frequently bodlerized friend, Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about regularization, which includes ridge, lasso, and elastic net procedures for variable selection within the general linear model and beyond. Along the way, we also mention The Family Shakespeare, Disturbance in the Force, McNeish on his bike, Spandex, Come on, guys, wait up. The altar of unbiasedness, currentizing, shooting arrows, stepwise goat rodeo, volume knobs, Hancockizing, always angry, getting slapped, betting a chicken, mission from God, hypothetical deductive porpoising, and letting go of truth, which you can't handle anyway. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. I was at a conference yesterday. It was a conference of statisticians. <laughs> I don't even think they bothered having a social. Just a waste of valuable presentation yeah, time. it's completely inefficient. Why would we have a social? <laughs> but I was talking to this one person who was interested in the podcast, right? And, and I didn't bring it up. Statistics with a capital S? Capital S, statistics. Wow. I'll try not to do it as robotically as it came out of the person, but you two seem like very colorful characters, you know? <laughs> like, well, well, thank you. And then the person said, so after you record, I would imagine you would have to do a lot of bodlerizing. <laughs> that sounds like vaguely inappropriate. Well, here's the thing. When someone uses a word that you don't know what it means, you have that choice point where you have to either say, I'm sorry, I don't know what that is, or you got to fake it. <laughs> I just decided to fake it because I already feel inadequate in the presence of people who are capital S statisticians. I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was something like, oh, yeah, we we have to do bodle over here and <laughs> bodle, little bodle over there. And, and I kind of chuckled, but I had no idea what it means. Do you know what bodlerization is? Yeah, but I want to hear your story about you looking it up. <laughs> just to see if it's correct, right? Yes, listeners, I do not know what this is. <laughs> Go ahead. This is a learning experience. What's the definition? Merriam-Webster defines polarizing as (laughs) to remove material that is considered improper or offensive, especially with the result that the text becomes weaker or less effective. Oh, my God. That is the podcast. (laughs) That's what we do. That literally is what we do. I know. I know. (laughs) So it's named after this guy, Dr. Thomas Bodler, who he and his sister, I guess, made this volume in late 1700s or early 1800s called The Family Shakespeare. It's the collection of Shakespeare's plays where this is their quote, those words and expressions are omitted, which cannot with propriety be read aloud in a family. So they kind of neutered Shakespeare so that you could sit around the house and read it with your kids. So what this person was saying is basically, you and I must have to cut a lot of crap (laughs) that we say. I am amazed at the insight he had because in five years, I don't think I've ever had a term that better characterizes what we do here. Read the definition again. Bodlerize. Remove material that is considered improper or offensive, especially with the result that the text becomes weaker or less effective. That's it. That's (laughs) what we do. (laughs) But you know what I like? Two things. Uh One is I now understand after five years what it is that we're doing here because Mm -hmm. I haven't for a long time. You're welcome. You're welcome. But second is evidently you can add I-Z-E to anything. (laughs) And then it becomes something? Yeah. I got really jammed up, but I Hancockized it. Wait a minute. What does that mean? Um, <laughs> you tell me. 
If someone uh, <laughs> were to Hancockize something, what in your eyes would that be? Uh, I would like to think that it's someone brings great clarity to something that otherwise seems naturally obfuscated. Like my dad, like what I just said. <laughs> That was a really good demonstration of that. Thank you. All right, well, then what's Curranize? Oh, don't turn this back on me. We're doing this all on the fly. I didn't even think about this. Curranize. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, someone curranizes something. To build someone's self-esteem through sarcasm. <laughs> How's that working out for you? And for your kids and for everyone you know. Yeah, done. <laughs> We do that in stats all the time. We Windsorize something or we... Well, yeah, of course. One that I like. Uh-huh. This is another cool one. And you know what? It's going to involve McNeish. Oh, dear God. We can bodlerize that. We can bodlerize... <laughs> can you bodlerize a person? <laughs> all right, we'll think about that. It is regularize. Oh, yeah. Regularization. We can conjugate it. I regularize. I, regular, I am so regularizing. It is you, the act of regularization. He, she, they regularize. Okay. All of this is going to be bodlerized okay. in post-production. Uh, quantitude. Why plan for an hour when you can edit for 20? <laughs> That's our new tagline. All right. Don't hang cockeyes this. We need to get back on track. All right. What we want to talk a little bit about today is what is regularization when we regularize something? We'll puzzle through it with the multiple regression model, but what we're going to see is it scales up to pretty much anything that has a loss function. Anything that we're trying to optimize, anything that we're trying to solve, you can in principle regularize. I think it's really cool to revisit because we were kind of shamed and berated and ridiculed appropriately in maybe the 1980s about variable selection methods that fell under the rubric of stepwise regression. All right, people out there right there, as soon as you heard it, like for many of you, your heart rate went up a little bit. Yeah, it should. It's like, even if you can't articulate why. Are you all right? I felt a great disturbance in the force, as if millions of voices suddenly cried out in terror. <laughs> Nobody ever should use stepwise regression. But this is kind of in the neighborhood in a more principled approach. But we're really talking about how can we use the characteristics of the data to select a smaller set of variables from a larger variable set to maximize prediction in some way. That's going to be the goal of what we're going to talk about today. There are like a thousand things that you said that just made me twitch in all kinds of ways. Things that I kind of hate. Some I know why I hate. Some it just sort of is visceral. and I'm not exactly sure why that happened. But there's a lot to unpack there because just the lead of selecting variables makes me kind of nervous. And especially in the day and age of replicability, reproducibility, pre-registration, right? This goes in the face of all of that. It seems like, because what we're going to talk about is having a set number of variables in a single regression model ain't all that in a bag of chips all the time in terms of replicability. So there's a weird kind of dark side to this. If you only knew the power of the dark side. The OLS is the almighty, right? Best linear unbiased estimator, blue. And when all of the conditions hold, that's great. You really are minimizing residual variance. You really are getting unbiased things. 
Of course, that assumes that you have all the right variables on the table in the first place to enter into this model that is specifically a linear model without any linearity that makes a whole bunch of assumptions. But yeah, other than that, it's amazing. We are going to fly at 30,000 feet over a massive literature that's out there. Mm -hmm. We will put up papers on the show notes. Dan McNeish has one of the best treatments of this, I think, lately. Yeah. It's incredibly clear, incredibly lucid. It's a 2015 paper he wrote while riding his bike to work. <laughs> in OLS regression, when you meet the assumptions in Gauss-Markov, it is what is called blue. It's the best linear unbiased estimator. And I think a lot of us, and Greg, maybe you and I are responsible for this in our teaching, as are many people, we lay down in prostrate form in front of the golden idol of unbiasedness. <laughs> we do not want a biased parameter. We don't want to be a biased person. We don't want to have a biased view, right? There's a pejorative element of being biased. We will do everything in our power to get an unbiased estimator. Yeah. But here's a funny story. You have a set of predictors, you have a finite sample, you use ordinary least squares, you get your parameter estimates, and under Gauss-Markov, they are the best linear unbiased estimates. But you run a fundamental risk in doing OLS in the way that we do of doing what's called overfitting. The idea of overfitting applies to lots and lots of things that we do throughout our day-to-day -day statistical lives. But when we have, imagine a lot of variables in a model and we have our particular sample there, we are crafting every single parameter in that model, right? And in a regression model, the ones we tend to focus on are the slopes and then we've got that little intercept there and oh yeah, there's a residual variance. We are crafting everything about that to this specific sample. And the more variables we have, the more moving parts, the more they have to wiggle and jiggle to accommodate each other. How well are those going to work when I get the next sample, the next sample, the next sample? It's like spandex, right? That you wrap it around the data and it just goes right up onto it. And it gives you a very good representation of what you're holding in your hand. But how good a job will that do the next time around? Here's the irony of it. OLS and other methods of estimation, right, as we alluded to a moment ago, is the scales up and down across everything that we do. It is very sensitive to idiosyncratic characteristics of a given sample. Yeah. And some of you may have been in a regression course and somebody showed a bivariate plot with a line in it and you go up and you grab one point mm -hmm. and you start to pull it down and you just watch that slope follow it down. Oh, yeah. It's like, wait up, guys. Right? I said that 10,000 times when I was a kid. Come on, guys, wait up. <laughs> it's like out of a Christmas story, the little brother. The line chases that one point, yeah. right? And this is why we do all the regression diagnostics and things that we do, because it's highly sensitive. So here's the really weird place that we find ourselves in. We do a pre-registration, all right? A priori, we lay out our sample, we lay out our variables. It's transparent, it's predictive, right? All the things that we aspire to do. Mm -hmm. We fit our model to the data and we obtain our estimates and they are unbiased under assumptions, all right? We're just gonna assume, right, these regularity conditions, Gauss-Markov, they are unbiased. Mm -hmm. But they don't replicate well to another sample, right? So it's unbiased 
but it's variable. Yes. If you take those regression coefficients and you fix them and fit them to an independent sample of data, or what people often do is a cross-validation, you do a split and hold on the sample of data, it actually doesn't replicate well because they're a different set of idiosyncratic characteristics to the data. We are laying our offering at the altar of unbiasedness, but at the same time, it undermines replicability because of the sample-to-sample variance. To be very clear here, the word variance means a whole lot of different things in our lives, even just in our statistical lives. And so when people talk about the bias-variance trade-off here, they don't mean residual variance per se. They don't mean variance of a particular variable. Really, what we're talking about is that how your results will vary so greatly from sample to sample, or if you take the values that you get from one sample and treat them as though they were handed down from on high and force those in a model on some other sample, you will get tremendous variability, right? It's not going to work out very well. And so when we say bias variance trade-off, that's a way to think about it, how much things would vary in cross-validation. And that's a great point because sometimes I've seen both in conversation, but even in the literature of confusing the bias variance trade-off with efficiency, which is another characteristic of a statistic. Is a statistic efficient, meaning that you have the smallest sampling variability in your estimate of those parameters? And this is not that, or at least it's not directly that. These are all related in various ways. We established in a prior episode, I don't have a lot of real friends, and so I make statistical models sentient, and they become my friends. It's not OLS's fault. It's doing what we're paying it to do. Select the values in the vector of your regression coefficient that minimizes the sum of the squared residuals. Under Gauss-Markov, there are no values of beta that will lead to a smaller sum of the squared residuals that exist in this universe or any other parallel universe. To do that, it uses every data point to calculate that minimum of the sum of squared residuals, and thus a single data point can change your values that you obtain, and that undermines replicability. And so the whole point of regularization is to say, look, maybe we're excessively bowing to unbiasedness. Mm -hmm. What if we were to introduce a little bit of bias? Like a little bit, we could, everybody look up here, everybody looking, you got, okay, (laughs) we're going to, can we all agree that we're going to put this little bit, right? You know, it's a bit like Earthquake Waller, right? With fungibility. (laughs) And that was my Uh own when he and I were talking and he said he's studying fungibility and I'm like, ha ha, who isn't? And I have no idea what he's talking about. I currenized it. Okay. Maybe I should update currenize for the definition of pretending to be brighter than you actually are. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. I'm going to update my definition. Okay. <laughs> is to currenize is to try to pretend that you're smarter than you actually are. Well, you're very good at it. <laughs> it's a little bit like fungibility where Waller showed, look, we can change our criterion a little bit and get an infinite number of regression coefficients. Mm-hmm. It's not the same thing, but what we're saying is if we introduce a little bit of bias, maybe only a little bit that we don't even care about, right? Just a little bit of bias. Mm -hmm. Does that reduce this sample-to-sample variability? And that's called the variance bias trade-off. Some of you may have seen in a class people talking about means and variances and bias, and you picture a target that you're shooting arrows at. Right. 
and one target is completely covered edge to edge with arrows, and it has a huge variance, but on average, it's hitting the bullseye. That's right. <laughs> Even though not a single arrow is in the bullseye. Not a single one hit it. <laughs> God, I love our job. I so love our job. On average, yeah. I hit the bullseye. And then you see another target where there's a super tight cluster of arrows, but it's a little bit offset from the center of the target. Mm-hmm. Well, that's biased. You're not on average getting the target. No, but any one arrow is vastly more likely to be closer to the bullseye than any of your arrows in the unbiased one. So that's the core motivation of regularization. Can we introduce a little bit of bias and in exchange for that, get a lower sample-to-sample variability that increases replicability and external validity? I love thinking about something called the root mean square error And that's a concept that applies in a lot of things that we do. But the idea is, how far away are you from the target? And we can think about this conceptually. How far are all the arrows from the middle? And they all have square distances. But we can think about that as having two parts to it. How far they are from their own center and how far their own center is from the true center. But when someone just talks about root mean squared error... It smushes those two things together. It smushes bias and variability into one place. And what we're talking about here is we're unpacking that a little bit. In the case of the arrows that are all over Hell's Half Acre, the root mean square error is completely dominated by that variability because there's virtually no bias. Whereas in that tight cluster of arrows, it's root mean square completely dominated by whatever bias it has, which might not even be very much, and there's almost no variability. And so the question is, when is it okay to say, yeah, I know I'm off by a little bit, but look how consistent I am now. Look how much that generalizes. That feels a little uncomfortable. You have to make me feel that that's going to be okay because I have this reaction to, I don't want bias, I don't want bias, I don't want bias. So you got to help me be okay with this. And I don't know if I can or not. Okay. Because there's a double whammy. One is we are born and raised in unbiasedness. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to even get our head around. Oh yeah, I would willingly work with a bias parameter estimate. That's part one. But then part two is, wait a minute, you're going to let your data determine your final model? Mm. Because what this also is, is variable selection. Yeah. What I want to do is instead of saying what appears to be a theoretically derived a priori model, I have 10 predictors, I have one outcome, I'm going to test it one time, and I'm going to get my p-values and confidence intervals from that. And now we're going to make it this iterative, data-driven, what are important models, what are not. Mm -hmm. And so again, there's another wrinkle in the force of a million voices in despair of no, 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 we can't do that. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a double challenge on this. Why I said it appears theoretical is of course it is, right? Theory determines your measures. Theory determines your independent variables. Theory determines what your dependent variable is. Theory determines do you have main effects or interactions or curvilinear. It's all a priori theory driven. But once you're at that point, the model is saturated. 
We've talked about this ad nauseum across the years. In a multiple regression model, every variable relates to every other variable. Mm -hmm. We're imposing no restrictions. Everything is freely estimated, and we perfectly reproduce the covariance matrix and the mean vector. So it's a little dubious to say that it's an a priori theoretical model that we're testing, right? We are two-faced. We gripe about variable selection methods like forward or backward or step wise or all possible subsets regression, you know, we say, well, where's the theory in that? But all we do is bring some variables that we theoretically justified to the table and we go, oh, wise data, tell us what's going on here. I'll tell you how I can live with being a biased person in these kinds of matters, right? If someone told me they got a regression with beta weight for a variable of 0.7, I would say that's a pretty strong beta weight. And if they told me another variable had a beta weight of 0.2, I would say that's not a very strong beta weight. But if they had told me instead of 0.7 and 0.2, 0.8 and 0.1, I wouldn't reach a different conclusion. I wouldn't have a different inference around those variables. Yes, I would have a different point estimate for its relation. But substantively, I would still say that first variable seems pretty important. That second variable seems not so important. And if we're willing to frame our conclusions in terms of overall impact, you know, what variables are important, what variables are not important, I think at the end of the day, I can live with a little bit of bias there because I don't think it's going to change the substantive conclusions, but it might help me sort through things a little bit better. It's not just variable selection, right? Is this like, I got three dozen variables. Seems like a lot of effort to identify which ones are important. I'm going to let the data do that for me. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of history of stepwise regression. For those of you who may not be familiar with that, stepwise regression is imagine I have 20 variables. In my neck of the woods, I'm looking at predictors of adolescent drug and alcohol use, and I have some dependent variable that's adolescent substance use. But I have 25 variables, and I want to say, out of all of these, what are the most important ones? For decades, people have offered different ways of doing it. Stepwise regression is a big one. And so you can do forward or you can do backward. Both are equally horrible. If you're doing forward entry, you say, what's the most significant predictor of the 20? And I'm going to pick that Mm -hmm. and then say, now that that one's in, what's the next most significant? And this should be making everybody deeply uncomfortable right now, just even in that step. And then we keep doing it. And at one point we say, well, no more significance. So we're going to stop, All right? That's forward. You can do backward where you put them all in and take out the non-significant ones. It's universally accepted that that's a goat rodeo and you shouldn't do that, <laughs> All right? But what we're talking about here with regularization, it does involve variable selection, but you start out with the entire set of variables and you build a loss function that includes what's called a penalty. And we'll talk about that in a moment. It draws certain parameters towards zero and others, it leaves them at some non-zero value. And what we're trying to do is upweight and downweight important predictors from less important predictors. And it's not what are my eight significant predictors, but it is saying what is the optimal weighting of my set of predictors that's going to maximize this replicability if I were to take these to another sample. So I like that you brought up the loss function because the loss function in OLS that we're accustomed to is just that residual sum of squares, right? That's the thing that we're trying to minimize. 
But now we're going to, there are different ways to think about it. One is to add something to that loss function, have an additional term to it, sometimes called a penalty term. Or we could also think about trying to minimize the residual sum of squares under some sort of constraints. So whether you think about it as an additional term in your loss function or minimizing under some particular constraints, there has to be something else going on here. And the way that it's typically talked about within a regularization framework is that there is this additional penalty term. And that penalty term is going to take different forms. And that's where a lot of work has been done as to what is the best penalty term for our purposes. And it's also a source of confusion because regularization or regularized regression is actually an umbrella term. Mm -hmm. There's a thing called ridge regression. Well, that's a form of regularization. There's a thing called lasso. And that's what Dan McNeish talks about in his paper a lot. He talks about other ones, but he really focuses on lasso. Well, that's another form of regularization. There's a really cool one that's an elastic net. All of these things are different forms of regularization. Picture your loss function. Remember what that is, is that's Calvin Ball, right? We've had prior episodes about Calvin Mm -hmm. Ball. We can make up arbitrary rules, but as soon as it's a rule, you can't violate it, right? That's Calvin Ball from Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin Ball rule in ordinary least squares is we're going to take the optimal linear combination of our set of predictors that results in the smallest possible sum of the squared residuals. That's the loss function. Picture M-I-N, min, sigma, E squared. Mm -hmm. E squared is the residual, Y minus Y hat. Y hat is our regression model. Beta naught plus beta 1 X1 plus beta 2 X2 to however many you have. And what we want to do is we want to write a nonlinear function for that, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. And in a simple univariate case, it's a parabola. On the x-axis is a regression coefficient estimate. The y-axis is the resulting sum of the squared residuals. We write what are called normal equations, and these are the derivatives of the loss function. We fix it to zero. What is that? Well, it's the very bottom of that loss function. Mm -hmm. It's the very bottom of that curve, and that's our least squares estimate. And we have all been taught there exists no value of beta that results in a smaller sum of the squared residuals, and it's unbiased. Picture that min sigma e squared, and what we're going to do is say plus lambda times some function. All right, well, that function is the penalty. And lambda, we can talk about as a tuning parameter. It's a weight. And what we have to do is define what that penalty function is, because we have a whole host that we can choose from. And then minor problem, minor, minor problem. We got to figure out the optimal value of lambda. So now this function that you have has two moving parts to it. One is your residual or error sum of squares, and the other is some kind of penalty. Lambda sitting out in front of that penalty term, and it's often considered to be part of that penalty term, is sort of like a volume knob or how much do you want this function that has two parts to it to be dominated by the penalty and how much do you want it to be dominated by the residual sums of squares. And lambda sometimes called a tuning parameter. If we turn lambda all the way down to zero, well, then we're at OLS because we're giving no weight whatsoever to the penalty. We are no more constrained than we are just in regular OLS regression. On the other hand, as we start to turn the lambda knob up, we are giving more emphasis to whatever constraint is embodied in that penalty term. And that, again, depends on whether we're doing ridge regression or lasso or elastic net, which is a combination of those or other things.
things that could be framed within that particular context. And so what we're really going to do is try lots of different values of lambda. Typically, is you'll say, well, what if I'm giving only a little bit of weight to that penalty term? Or a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. And then you're going to try and map out what happens in the end to your results when you do that and find some choice for lambda along the way where you think you are getting just that right balance of your residual sums of squares along with whatever constraint you're imposing in the overall estimation. And what I love about that is it ties back to what you talked about earlier, where root mean squared error is a sum of the variability of the estimator plus squared bias. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing is breaking the loss function into those two parts. And by having this penalty function that's weighted by lambda, that is what's introducing bias. But the downstream advantage of that is that it is enhancing sample-to-sample replicability because it is less susceptible to overfitting the idiosyncratic characteristics of the particular data set, right? We got to keep our eyes on the long con here, which is I'm still uncomfortable intentionally using a biased estimator, but what we're getting in exchange for that is more robust to an individual sample and more replicable across independent samples. The early days, and this goes back decades, there's a thing called ridge regression. Mm -hmm. It has a tuning parameter lambda. It has a penalty function. The other thing I love about this, I actually understand the mathematics of it. (laughs) I mean, you look at these equations and it's like, oh yeah, I get that. What it is, is you have this tuning parameter and then the penalty is the sum of the squared regression estimates. That's it. Yeah. You can express it in closed form. And actually with ridge regression, we don't have to go through the equations here because it is an audio podcast and of limited utility. That hasn't stopped us in the past. Not at all. Okay. You know what? I am going to do it because it helps. The standard regression in matrix is X prime X inverse X prime Y. Uh And in ridge regression, we do X prime X plus lambda I, where I is the identity matrix, times X prime Y. You just throw it in. It's non-iterative. You don't have to optimize. You still got to pick lambda. We still don't know what that tuning parameter is. If the penalty is the sum of the squared regression coefficients, that's ridge regression. But then there's a thing called lasso regression, and that is least absolute shrinkage and selection operator. Ooh. I think that was a backronym. I think somebody figured that out to get the lasso. Totally a backronym. It's exactly like a ridge, but instead of lambda times the sum of the squared regression coefficients, it's lambda times the sum of the absolute value of the regression coefficients, right? That's lasso regression. And then as Greg alluded to, there's this really cool thing called elastic net that combines ridge and lasso in a different proportion is it's a mix of those two things. The main focus recently has been on lasso. Mm -hmm. So ridge has been around a long time. Ridge has been used pretty extensively in settings where there's multicollinearity among your set of predictors. It's really good for multicollinearity, but the way the squaring work 
works in that penalty function is it draws some parameters to zero, but they never actually go to zero. Right. The real advantage of lasso is it actually does draw a parameter estimate to zero, which functionally selects it out of the model. Yeah, and that's a very useful thing if you are trying to do variable selection and don't mind interjecting a little bit of bias along the way. So ridge regression in the end still kind of keeps everything in play and lasso just goes in and lassos the variables that it wants to keep and... No, it's really too tortured, isn't it? Yep. Is that Hancockizing? Taking something so far that you're really just beating it to death? If it involves puns, <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's it. That's me. That's Hancockizing. Okay. Thank you. Should we just stop the episode here? I think we figured it out. Thanks very much, everybody. <laughs> The goal of the lasso is to give you a subset of predictors from a larger set, but the motivation is to try to maximize the replicability across future samples or cross-validated samples. It's this weird juxtaposition of a truly data-driven procedure. Some approaches use optimization. Some do things called a grid search. Mm -hmm. I really like grid searches. Is It's just a do loop and you increment hmm. lambda by 0.001 and you go get coffee and come back and it's done a thousand of them and then there's some criterion maybe it's a mean squared error maybe it's a BIC or an AIC something is holding in your left hand it is unabashedly data driven and algorithmic with some arbitrary criterion to which you're optimizing but in your right hand is your motivation often is to try to enhance replicability and reduce variance to enhance external validity. I love that you love the grid search thing because to me it is so intuitive. It's not a sexy Hulk approach at all, right? It's a, what do we call it, Rage Hulk? Oh, it's Rage Hulk. Dr. Banner, now might be a really good time for you to get angry. That's my secret, Captain. I'm always angry. It is Rage Hulk. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> tries a new Lambda, tries a new Lambda, tries a new Lambda over and over. And who cares if it's not sexy and doesn't have that mathematical elegance? And what you wind up getting is this beautiful function, really, that, practically speaking, is sort of suggesting to you different numbers of predictors to keep. And as you crank Lambda up a little bit, little bit by little bit, what happens eventually is that all of a sudden, function just shoots way the heck up. And you have to make a decision about, you know, how many variables do you want to keep? And usually what happens by whatever criterion you're choosing, whether it's a Bayesian information criterion or some kind of R-squared criterion, whatever it might be, Usually people will pad that a little bit. In fact, there's a standard error associated with your results as you move that. Sometimes people will pad it by one standard error just so that they might gain a little bit in terms of replicability, accommodating what you might expect to happen the next time around. It's very clever if you are willing to say, I don't mind these betas, these standardized regression coefficients being a little bit biased to be able to cut all of this stuff loose. And one of the really cool things about it is that, you know, if someone came to me and said, I've got 86 variables and 50 people, the first thing that you're supposed to do is slap that person, just straight up slap that person and send them out of your office. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Will Smith just smacked the shit out of me. 
But in this particular world, there are ways to try to operate even when your P, number of variables, is greater than your N using these kinds of lasso or other regularized procedures because it's actually helping you to find that subset of variables where in the end it's going to be less than N, but that it's manageable. And otherwise, that was completely unthinkable in an OLS world. Oh, it's crazy town to think about yeah. <laughs> where you would have more variables than <laughs> subjects. Yeah. And one is, when on earth would you ever do that, right? I mean, just from mm -hmm. I'm out of psychology or out of education, to have 50 variables in 40 subjects would not even make any sense. Mm -hmm. But as we're moving into machine learning, AI kinds of things, having a thousand variables in 800 subjects is not as bizarre as it used to be. Oh, no. But when we all teach regression, one of the things we point out is you have to have at least one person more than the number of variables. And the reason is, is you can't invert X prime X. That's right. If you've got 10 people, you cannot mathematically have more than nine variables. But that's with that loss function where it's just minimizing the sum of the squared residuals. As soon as we throw on this penalty, that doesn't hold anymore. Right. Which I still find a little weird. I also find a little weird. Your degrees of freedom change as you do this. Ooh. And your model identification changes, not in the regression because they're sad but we can scale this up to a structural equation model, models that might not be identified in the usual full information maximum likelihood become identified in the regularization. So this is a challenge to your worldview in thinking about bias, yeah. thinking about theory, thinking about replicability, and then even thinking about identification. Through all of these fancy processes that we're doing, whether it's regularization in the form of ridge regression or lasso or elastic net, which is really just a combination of those two, I get a model in the end, and it is a model that has cut some variables loose functionally, and it has laid some other variables at my feet with certain weights associated with them. Now I'm trying to figure out what the heck do I do with this model that I have? You know, one of the tensions that I'm feeling inside, and maybe I think I need to just sort of let it go. is the tension between explanation and prediction. I tend to approach this world as an explainer, as someone who wants to understand or at least seek some kind of truth here. And I think I kind of check that at the door along the way with these procedures, right? Yes and no. Okay. A gross oversimplification of science is four steps. Observation, prediction, explanation, and manipulation observation, you get a beer, you go out. Look at that. The tide comes in, tide goes out, tide comes in, tide goes out, right? We observe the world around us. Prediction is, I'm going to pound a stake in the sand and I bet you a chicken, because this is way back in the early times, so we're dealing in chickens. <laughs> okay, chicken. I bet yeah. you a chicken that at lunchtime tomorrow, the water is going to be right here. And with tides, they actually had incredibly highly predictive tables of tides mm -hmm. and an understanding of when they would come in and when they go out with no understanding of why. 
Mm-hmm. They came in and out. And that was the prediction. And then it was moving to the explanation is if you didn't want to get burned at the stake by the church, you were Ptolemy and said that the earth was the center <laughs> of our planetary system. Mm-hmm. If you wanted to run the risk of getting burned at the stake, you were Copernicus and you said, you bonehead, the sun is at the center and that's moving to explanation. And I think this is a way of trying to move back and forth between those. We don't have the time to get into deduction and induction, but deduction is what we're really hardcore taught about having theory and hypotheses and making predictions and bringing data to bear. But an equal half of that circle is induction, which is hypothesis generating and theory development. You have a hundred variables. You do these principled, careful model building where you're left with 18 predictors that were not zeroed out, then you have the ability to not say, I've discovered the truth as God sees it. Well, me and the Lord, we got an understanding. We're on a mission from God. <laughs> These are the 18 causal predictors. Of course they're not. But does that give you information about among your set of variables, what are promising and important? Why are they the 18 that are left over? And could you then design either the next study or revise your hypotheses or theories based on that? And so I see this as a beautiful way of porpoising up from deduction down and induction, back up to deduction down, you know, sometimes called the hypothetical deductive cycle of scientific inquiry is this is what we do for a living. The thing you can't do is get those 18 variables and treat them as if that had been your hypothesized regression model. Is that what I think it is? I found a penny! Remember p-values? Right. Standard error p-value, critical ratio, confidence intervals, however you want to do the hokey pokey with all the same damn information. All of those are based on a one-and-done model. Yep. Those p-values are only valid for that single estimated model. You just went hog wild with the goat rodeo, and those p-values can't be interpreted in the usual way. Yeah. Some people have offered resampling techniques. Some people have offered cross-validation, k-fold techniques. One that I thought was kind of nice is if it got zeroed out, it wasn't important. And if it didn't get zeroed out, it is important. And that's as far as you go. Mm-hmm. The p values are relevant. This is very reminiscent to me of Howard Weiner's It Don't Make No Never Mind. We worked so very hard to get estimates of the different slopes here. And in the end, he just said, yeah, you got some variables. You might <laughs> you might as well just make them have slopes of one or something that's very, very simple because that might cross-validate at least as well as what you have. And here, what we're doing in the end is just saying, yep, some made the cut, some didn't make the cut, and that's what you have to work with. That, to me, I might be willing to accept. I do believe that sometimes something hits the cutting room floor that you probably should have kept. That's bound to happen, especially when you have greater amounts of collinearity among variables. From a practical standpoint, I don't tend to need to know that the beta weight is 0.7. I just need to know what variables I think are worth moving on to whatever the next level of inquiry is. And so I think from that perspective, this has a lot of promise. And that's a huge point. What do you take to the next step? Because so much of what we do in practice is like, here's my study, I'm done, and I found the four predictors of whatever. If we remind ourselves that we're a cumulative replicable science and that this is just giving information for the next step, then a lot of this makes much more sense. 
But you also want to remember, this is not a theoretical, right? We still have our measures. We still have our outcome. We still have our sample. And also, this is a danger, I think, in some of this. These are all main effects that we're talking about. And you might find a predictor is drawn to zero on its own, but it plays a really important moderating role. And so we got to keep our head up about that. Sure. Just keep in mind as you're thinking about your own data, your own questions, this is not just a machine learning problem. This isn't you have a thousand predictors. McNeish shows a really nice example that has something like 10 predictors Mm -hmm. in a smaller sample size, right? Is that these have potential uses in where we have maybe a little bit larger number of predictors, a little bit smaller sample size. We're worried about overfitting. We're worried about some predictor being driven by just a one or two or a small number of observations. I've sometimes thought this is almost a form of regression diagnostics. Mm -hmm. Do your model as you hypothesized and then do a regularized version and see how do they compare with one another. It's a sensitivity analysis. So you don't have to be in a big data AI chat GPT kind of thing. We can use this in everyday life. As soon as we're comfortable adding that penalization parameter and saying, I am willing to take a little bit of bias in exchange for enhancing replicability and reducing sample-to-sample variability, well, you can apply this to the structural equation model. Jacobucci has written some nice stuff about this. Take the maximum likelihood loss function and bolt on a penalty function. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Bauer and some of his ex-students, a wonderful guy named Will Belzac and Marco Chen and Veronica Cole, Mm -hmm. they've written three or four papers together, but they brought regularization to differential item functioning in nonlinear factor analysis. We had Bauer on a while ago talking about moderated nonlinear factor models where you're looking for very complex forms of differential item functioning. And I've written a fair amount about this myself. And one of the biggest problems is model building. If you have a set of moderators of your measurement parameters, you can have several hundred potential sources of diff. And we've written a couple of papers that laid out an LRT-based framework for doing this. Mm -hmm. I won't go through it here, but you introduce sets of parameters, do likelihood ratio tests, you gather them together, you put them back in. It's pretty tedious, and it is susceptible to family-wise error rate because you're doing like a boatload of these tests. Well, Bauer and his students have proposed using, do you ready for this? Regularized, moderated, nonlinear factor (laughs) analysis to detect differential item function from a set of correlated covariates. But it's exactly the same thing because what it does is in this grid search-like optimization, you're trying to retain differential item functioning effects that exist and draw out those that do not. They go to zero. And so instead of doing a boatload of likelihood ratio tests, you Mm. just kind of let it do its thing. And then in that final step, you have an optimal combination of covariate effects on your item parameters. And it's just an alternative way of approaching a complicated parameterized model. Once you are willing to give up your quest for truth in the sense of an unbiased estimate of the role that a variable or some process has. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! 
then I think this does free you up in a lot of different ways and lets us get at much, much more complex functions and processes to know them sort of rather than to not be able to know them at all because we can't even estimate them. So there's a lot of promise for this being bolted onto so many other things that we do. I like it. I do too. And I'm really enthusiastic about this as an approach. What I like about it is it makes us hold seemingly opposing motivations at the same time. Right. And I just like that. I like that in general life is that you have to balance these things. We've talked a lot about the bias variance trade-off. I like that, holding those simultaneously. The deeper one is that a priori theoretical perspective that is being in part governed by the characteristics of your sample data. Mm -hmm. This is a data-informed procedure, but that juxtaposition is that your goal of using a data-informed procedure is to enhance replicability. Because what seems like an a priori theoretically derived regression model is actually susceptible to overfitting your data and then failing to replicate on an independent sample. I just like being goosed to think about tricky things at the same time. It's fun. And bringing it back to something that you said and something that you say very often is we can't view what we're doing right now as like the be all end all. You have to view what you're doing as being a bean in the pile of science, right? And this is something that is helping us to advance us along those fronts. Exactly. And moving back and forth from prediction to explanation, not just moving forward, but ping-ponging back and forth, which is use a regularized regression model, identify 18 promising variables, and then move to an independent sample or a cross-validation, K-fold, withhold, or whatever you've done, Mm -hmm. and then move toward a mediating model, right? Because all of these are just a horse race in a regression model of what is the effect of one above and beyond all others, but that's never where we want to end up. We want to know what leads to what leads to what leads to what, Mm -hmm. and this is grist for that mill. I like it. I think it's fun. I think it's exciting. And if nothing else, as you're thinking about your own work and how you want to move forward, this is just another arrow in the quiver that is available to you to use. You could use it as a primary motivating method of analysis. You could use it as a sensitivity analysis. Mm-hmm. I could currentize this and talk more when I don't understand it, <laughs> sure. but I'm at about the end. And so I think this is a good stopping point. All right. Thanks very much, everybody. Thanks, everybody. See ya. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to Quantitude on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get material to boring eyes yourself. And please leave us a review. You can follow us on Twixter, Twix, Twix, Twixter, Dex, Twix, Twixter. We are at Quantitude Pod. And check out our webpage at quantitudepod.org for searchable archives, playlists, show notes, a syllabus that organizes episodes under class topics, and other cool stuff. Finally, you can get a plethora of Quantitude-themed merch at redbubble.com, where all proceeds from non-bootleg authorized products go to donors choose to support low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude. If truly bowdlerized, we would literally have no audio file left to post. Quantitude has been brought to you by additional academic and statistical terms that probably should be made into verbs. Denize. Transitive verb, third person singular, simple present, denizes, present participle, denizing, and simple past and past participle, denized. 
The act of identifying a strong and well-performing academic department, and without warning or explanation, increasing faculty workload, increasing class size, and decreasing TA support, all with the sole purpose of enhancing the superficial appearance of administrative leadership where none truly exists. To denize. Median split eyes. To median split eyes is to implement a strategy that, at the time, seems both easy and clever, but only later is revealed to be a horrible, horrible idea that had completely predictive negative downstream effects if given even a moment's thought, yet will be repeated over and over again in the future regardless of prior outcomes. This is applicable in statistics in the professional workplace, but is particularly salient in romantic relationships. To median split eyes and committee meeting eyes. The act of taking even the smallest and most discreet agenda item and unnecessarily expanding the discussion without bounds, typically through the use of repetition, failure to listen to colleagues, self-righteous indignation, lack of perspective taking, and pursuit of personal agendas. Now, in my opinion, the key problem here involves what I've come to call meeting creep. When I first joined the department in 1999, <coughs> ow, to committee meeting eyes. This is most definitely not NPR.